It's always so wonderful to get a chance to speak to people that I love. And uh, how many, uh, I was going to ask you a question. How many have, and I want to show a hands here. I'm not letting you out of this. How many have at least 10 pet peeves, okay, that you have in your life? Okay, pet peeves are things that annoy you that other people do, okay? And, and, and don't lie to me because that's one of my pet peeves of people. <laughs> so really, how many have at least 10? Okay, you're fairly honest. Um, I was looking at a website this morning because I was thinking about pet peeves because I have a few of them. And the older I get, I think the more I get, the more... I just have a fear I'm going to be a grumpy old man sitting on the porch yelling at kids to get off my lawn. <laughs> so I've just got to relax. But, you know, there are some legitimate pet peeves that we have. I was looking at this website. It said 70 pet peeves that you may have. And I'm like, 70? I have like five. And then I was scrolling through them this morning very early. And I'm like, oh, man, I do have 70. Uh, because they were all... But there are legitimate ones. And I, here's one that I have, and I think it's just because I'm a Bible teacher and um, I love God's truth. It's when Christian books come out from Amazon that are not biblical, and yet they're bestsellers. Did you hear what I just said? They're coming out in droves. The, uh, it seems like the last 20 years, they've just flooded the market with best-selling books, Christian books that tell us that God has some incredible destiny that leads us to this audacious plan for a great, big, better life. One well-known pastor, he fills up a sports stadium every single Sunday. He's coming out with a new book in October called Your Greater is Coming. Discover the path to your bigger, better, and brighter future. Now, if they were about heaven and glory and, and being redeemed and being perfect in heaven, and um, I wouldn't have a problem with that, but they're talking about here on this earth. The Amazon blurb says something like, this book will inspire you to persevere for the best that's just ahead. Whatever you're experiencing, don't lose faith or give up on your dreams. Wait for your greater because your greater is coming. And sometimes I think when I read that blurb, how does he know that? How does he know my greater is coming? And has God promised me my greater is coming on this earth? Sometimes I wonder how those books would sell in Afghanistan, where the Taliban has no tolerance for Jesus followers. They will kill you immediately. A family member has the permission to kill you if you convert from Islam to Christianity. Or North Korea, or Syria, or Iraq, any of those. Well... You know, when the believers in Thessalonica were going through severe trials, Paul did not tell them that their greater is coming. He told them the opposite. He said in 1 Thessalonians 3, For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you now know. So he kept telling them, affliction's coming, affliction's coming. He didn't hold back, and I had to think to myself, well, maybe I should write a bestseller. Your affliction is coming. Discover your path to a, a painful destiny. How many, how many should we order right off the bat? See, that wouldn't sell. It wouldn't sell. 
We're, we're about to uh, look at a servant of Jesus Christ. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6, who has no expectations about his future or his greatness or his big, better life. His name is Stephen. And Stephen has one goal, and it was to faithfully serve Christ wherever he was and whatever the cost, as you'll see that, at whatever the cost. You know, I think we believe that also. I'll serve you whatever the cost. Uh, as long as whatever the cost doesn't mean that I have to die early. I want a long life, Lord, and a prosperous life, and then maybe a life that I could see my children's great-grandchildren, and then I'm good with that, you see. You'll see it's not always how it works out. We'll look at a man this morning. I think he's going to help us get our focus back. The world just, it bumps and we lose our focus. And, and the world just knocks our focus off Jesus Christ. And we start thinking, this is a pretty good world. I'm going to live here for a long time. I know I'm supposed to, but I'm, but I'm, our focus gets all off. We desperately need to get our focus back and our eyes on Jesus again. And I'm telling you, looking at the life of Stephen helped me so much this week. We're right in the middle of a series called Extraordinary Men and Women of the Bible. And I guarantee you'll never forget this man. He's not one of the 12, but he had miraculous powers like the 12. He's not an elder, but he was an incredible leader in the church. He wasn't a prophet, but oh my, he was a great preacher, as you'll see in chapter 7. And he's not necessarily a deacon in the sense of the office that was fully developed 15 years or so later by Paul, but deacon means servant, and he was a servant of Jesus Christ, a faithful servant. And you know, usually the people God uses, they start with small, insignificant tasks, and so does Stephen, so does Stephen. You know, in one verse, he's cleaning tables. The next verse, two verses later, he's doing great signs and wonders. And then a few verses later, he's preaching one of the most powerful messages in the entire New Testament. That's Stephen. That's Stephen. So, and then just when you think, just when you think this man is off to the races, you're so excited for him. He's dead. He's done. Sometimes... More than once, I've been sitting on the couch watching Hallmark movies with my wife. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. So <laughs> I'll turn to my wife on the couch and I'll say, you know, I would have probably written that last scene differently, right? Probably would have written that last scene differently. And then she listens to how I would have rewritten it. And I'm tempted to do that in this scene in the section of Acts, because it seems like Stephen could have rocked the world for Jesus Christ if God would have given him more time. And I'm not doubting God. That's just what I go through when I'm reading this. Like, wow, there's a guy that could have really made an impact in the kingdom of God even more than he did. And I say all that to say there's no way I would question God's decision to take him so quickly because he is God and I'm not. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says he is the rock and his works are perfect and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. MacArthur said this about Stephen and it's so, so dead on. I'm gonna change the word dead on to right on. It's so right on because listen to this. 
The impact of a man or woman's ministry has nothing to do with the length of their life. The impact of a man or woman's ministry has nothing to do with the length of their life, which means you could live to be 100 years old and impact very few lives if you're prideful and self-centered and selfish. Or you could live a relatively short life and by the grace of God leave such an imprint in people's lives that they're still talking about the lessons that they learned from you long after you're in glory. You say, I want that. That's what I want. Well, then listen up, because he's going to teach us that. We're about to be challenged by a man who has unconcerned for his own life and totally consumed with serving Christ and bringing him glory. You know, his name means victor's crown, Stephanos, and he lives up to his name in the little portion that God has given him in history and I've just got three easy outlines, chosen to serve, chosen to preach, and chosen by God to die. Chosen to die. First, chosen to serve. Now, at this time, if the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint developed on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So stop right there. Now, at this time, okay, when you're reading that, what time? This is the time that the church is exploding the growth. Peter preaches a message in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people come to Christ. Peter preaches another message in Acts chapter 4, and 5,000 men come to Christ. Okay? That means women came to Christ also, and children, they just recorded the men. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem right now who are newly saved. And in all this incredible growth, there's some serious complaining going on. The complaint of the Hellenists there. In six, who, who, who were these Hellenists? Well, they were Jews that were living outside of Palestine and who absorbed all the Greek culture but didn't give up their, their roots in Judaism, okay? They all came in for the, the Passover. And you see... Somebody, I think one writer said there could have been 20 to 30,000 people in Jerusalem, new people that have come, they're saved, and now they have needs. And I'm telling you, there is a huge collision coming. But I can't imagine they have needs and they all want to stay. They don't want to go back to their hometown because the church has just been born and they're like, I love this oneness. You're my brother, you're my sister. We can stay here. But they've got needs like eating and, and, and food and jobs and clothes and caring for these kids and the widows. And that's the complaint. They were neglecting the widows. And I don't know how detailed that gets, but maybe they were feeding him one meal instead of three. Maybe they weren't giving them the quality of food that the, that the Hebrew, native Hebrews were getting. I don't know. But it doesn't seem that big of a problem. But it could have been a big problem. The church is young. It's fragile. And this could have been a huge church split right at the beginning of the church. And Satan would have had a huge foothold in the church right at the beginning. So the 12 disciples, remember, 12, 12 minus Judas plus Matthias. Okay, so when I say 12, don't say, wait, weren't there 11? Well, one killed himself, and then they picked Matthias to take his place. So the 12, I have the solution of the 
the apostles. So the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable, desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Instead, brothers and sisters, select from you among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task, and we will devote, our, de devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So he says, listen, what we won't do, congregation, is we're not giving up preaching the word and praying just to take care of the day-to-day -day tasks. That's what we're not doing. And then he says, but what we will do is we will delegate. We will delegate. Look at verse 3. It says, instead, brothers and sisters, select from yourselves seven men, seven good men. So they chose seven good men. Good reputation. Full of faith. Full of the Holy Spirit. So good reputation. That means, that means they're above reproach. That means there's no one in the community or in the congregation that could point a finger and say, there's a flaw. There's a character flaw. Full of faith. That means they were controlled by trusting God's promises. Not perfectly. They, these people, these, these seven men were not perfect. But they were men who were controlled by God's promises. They believed him. Full of the Holy Spirit. Obedient to his word. And to his leading, full of grace, this is the God-given ability that when you're teaching or presenting the truth, you have patience, you have love, you have understanding, and full of power. Even though Stephen was not an apostle, he was given incredible power through the Holy Spirit to do all the signs probably that the apostles did. And so verse 5 says, the announcement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they brought these three men, these men, before the apostles. And after praying, they laid their hands on them. You only know of two of these men of the seven. So when you get to heaven, act like you know the other ones, okay? Don't make it awkward. Just say, hey, praise the Lord for your ministry and acts and tell us what, because five of them, Luke didn't really concentrate on. He just concentrated on Stephen, and then a couple chapters he concentrated on Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that? But those other guys were servants of God, full of faith, had a good reputation. And then he said, we will dedicate ourselves, verse 4, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this is where pastors get the fact that pastors are to devote themselves to the word of God and prayer. I have a note here. There is nothing more important in the church of Jesus Christ than praying and preparing and presenting the word of God. There is nothing. Those are the two priorities. And these are extremely difficult tasks. I had a, a man once that had no respect for like church leaders or he just thought, I, I, I don't know what it was. It was 20-some years ago. He says, listen, how hard can it be? You pick a passage, you read a commentary, you type it out, you practice it on Saturday, you present it on Sunday. You know, how hard can that be? And he says, I want to know what they do with the other 35 hours. I'm like, wow, you really don't understand. But if you've ever taught or ever preached the word of God, you do understand. It's hard work. First, 
First Timothy says this, I love this. It says, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Now, we, I love the fact that Phil is still hungry for the word of God. He still loves discovering the truth and digging into the word of God. I'm sure there are pastors that you almost have to put a lock on the other side of his door. You know what I mean? To lock him in there so he studies the word of God. But I am so thankful for Phil that he loves the word of God and he encourages us to preach and to, and to get into the word of God. But I'm telling you right now, it's hard work because they said it's hard work. So did it work? Well, verse seven says, the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Of course it worked, it always does. When you give yourself over to the ministry of the word of God in prayer, God's word would not turn, return void. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You've seen it right there. And now it's, he's chosen to preach in verse 8, chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You say, well, I thought he was serving tables. He was serving tables. But he was also preaching. I can't imagine. I, I picture Stephen like running out and taking his apron off, you know what I mean, still having like white rags in his pockets from, you know, and then just going, people of Jerusalem, and then preaching, and then healing, and then doing mighty signs and wonders, right? And believe me, he was on their radar. And when I say them, the Sanhedrin, I mean, they've warned the disciples earlier in the book, then they've imprisoned the disciples, and then they flogged and beat the disciples, and now they're gonna kill one of the disciples. For preaching the gospel. Well, they're deceitful set up. The demons knew what kind of man Stephen was. They knew he was full of faith. They knew he was full of the Holy Spirit and full of power. So they waged an all-out war against him. Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including the Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia, that's where Paul was from, matter of fact, and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses and said, this man does not stop speaking against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses handed down to us. I love this verse in 15. And all who were sitting in the council stared at him and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel. You see, they began to debate with Stephen, but they couldn't debate with Stephen because he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was no match for these men. There's at least 70 one men in front of him right now, 70 on the Sanhedrin and one high priest, 71 against one, and he's cleaning up on it. He said, well, I bet he gave him both barrels, didn't he? Well, if you mean, did he speak the truth in love and patience and humility? Yeah, I think he did. I think he did. I, I, I don't picture him screaming at them. I don't picture him, you say, well, he was bold. Yeah, but boldness has nothing to do with volume. Has nothing to do with loudness. It's just, am I proclaiming the truth of God to someone clearly 
and consistently. That's boldness, okay? I could be screaming at you and be wrong, right? Well, you'll never, ever impact anyone in the kingdom of God if you are a know-it-all, if you're condescending, if you're angry, impatient. And I think he was so loving. Even when he gets to the point in 51, we'll look at a few minutes, where he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard in ears. I used to think he was yelling that and the veins on his neck were popping out. But as I kept reading this passage, this guy is so patient and compassionate, even till death. I mean, his last breath was, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, right? So I think when he was saying, you stiff-necked, I think he was doing that with a broken heart. I think he was weeping at that point, not, not screaming. Well, Stephen's enemies were at a dead end because they couldn't compete with him. And so when you can't beat him, you lie about him. And so they had people come up and lie about Stephen, just like Jesus. Remember Matthew 26? In his trial, they had people lying about Christ and what he said and blasphemy. They're, they're saying that Stephen blasphemed Moses, God, the law, and the temple. Blasphemy was, was punishable by death. These were serious charges before this young man. And an interesting thing happens as the authorities seize Stephen and place him in the hot seat. He fixed, they fixed their gaze on him, and all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. I don't exactly know what this is all about. One writer says God caused his grace and his glory to rest upon Stephen because he was defending the truth. You know 1 Peter 4.14? It says, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I think that could have happened. But another writer made this connection, and I really like this. Only two people in the Bible that God caused their face to shine besides Christ, Moses and Stephen. And he says, Moses' face shone because God was approving the old covenant. And Stephen's face shone because God was approving the new covenant. Right in front of the Sanhedrin who were saying, he blasphemes Moses and God and the temple and the law. And God just says, turn that light on. And they're just gazing at the glory of God. And I'm sure they're thinking, wait, I remember when that happened in Exodus. And he was dragged in the synagogue. He had to make his case before the Sanhedrin. I'm not going to, this is not an exposition of Acts, okay? This is a character Bible study. So I'm going to have to just talk through Acts chapter 7 because it's 52 verses in his sermon. And that would take weeks and I called Phil and asked him if I could have weeks, and he still hasn't returned my call. <laughs> so just be patient with me here. Remember, Steve is answering, Stephen is answering his critics who's, who are uh, uh, saying he's a blasphemer, and he really does this. I'm not blaspheming the law. You are. In verse 53 of chapter 7, he says, You receive the law as delivered by angels, and you do not keep it. He says, I'm not blaspheming God. You are by rejecting his son that he prophesied through the prophets. And as far as Moses goes, he would agree with me 
because he said in verse 37 of chapter 7, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, but you rejected that prophet, he said. You betrayed that prophet, and he says you murdered that prophet. And the temple was glorious, but God's glory is not bound to a man-made temple. Case closed. No further questions, Your Honor. And he just, he, he just handles it beautifully. You can tell he's so filled with the Spirit. Every answer is just perfect. He's led by the Spirit of God. And then his, his sermon goes from historical to personal in a, just a New York minute right here. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. I really wish, <laughs> when, you, when you preach a passage, you read it like 50 times. I wish he would have stopped at verse 50. Now I know, and just kind of, like why did he have to go to verse 51? That's what I was thinking. You always ask questions when you're looking at the, the word of God. It's just, what if you would have done this? Well, um, hopefully I've given you some things to think about, and we can finish this conversation, Lord willing, next week. Let's pray. Um, but then I had to think to myself, now listen to this, this is important. The gospel is more than just a historical event that a person must acknowledge with his intellect, all right? It's a message that confronts the heart and calls people everywhere to repent and believe. Like Acts chapter 17, verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I think it's great that you believe that Jesus Christ lived and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose again. That's historical. But if you don't go any further than historical, then you do not have eternal life. You have to acknowledge that you're lost. You have to acknowledge that that historical event that was the death of Christ for your sins and that he, arose, he rose from the dead. He conquered death. And now I can conquer death. And now he offers me full forgiveness and a full pardon when I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says if you would confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You see? Historical has to become personal or you are still lost. You are still lost. You say, man, I like the first two points, but I don't like this third one. Well, we have to go there. Chosen to die. Chosen to die. I know this doesn't sound right in our minds, but God had a plan for Stephen's life, and he's allowing him to fulfill it so beautifully. If you believe the fact that God is sovereign, and I know you do, okay, and that just means that God's in control of everything. He's the Lord of the beginning, and he's the Lord of the end. Then you're going to have no problem with this event that we're about to look at right now. All right? Isaiah 46, 9 says that God knows the end from the beginning. His purposes will stand, and he will do what he pleases. 
God was not caught off guard by the death of Stephen, okay? He was not caught off guard. It was in his sovereign plan. Psalm 139, 16 says, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when they, when yet there was not one of them. So God has this book. Not really, okay? I mean, he doesn't have an actual book because he's omniscient, okay? But the writer's saying, listen, God knows every single person, their beginning, their end, how many days they'll live. God, God knows that because he's God, all right? And I was thinking, to, in your book, I have a beginning. In your book, I, Gino Desimone, have an end. And then when I'm at my end, that starts my what? Beginning. So don't be depressed. You have a beginning, you have an end, and if you know Jesus Christ here this morning or online, you have another beginning, eternity. And that never what ends. Well, I have a note here. You will not depart from this earth one second sooner than you should. And you will not hang around one second longer than your appointed time to leave. And my dad, he's so sweet. He's going to be 91. He is the world's greatest dad. I see these guys with shirts that say world's greatest dad. I'm like, <laughs> you must have got that at my dad's garage sale. Um, because <laughs> my dad actually is the world's greatest dad. Um, he's so loved, and he loves his children so deeply. And my dad and I came to Christ at the same time, and it's just a wonderful story. And um, he always says, I'm so homesick. I want to see your mom. I want to go to heaven. I want to see Christ. Why is God keeping me around? It just seems like, you know, it seems like I, you know, and I said, Dad, God's not sitting there going, wait a minute, Larry Desimone, he's still here? Um, you know, well, that's not right. Uh, you know, God has a purpose, and maybe God's purpose for you, Dad, is just that we enjoy this friendship that we have had with you for so many years, and you enrich our life with your wisdom, and we watch an older man walk with the Lord in his, in his twilight years, and, and, and he smiles, and he said, I'm still homesick. I'm like, I know. And then I wrote down, God has a purpose, and he has a plan, and his, when his purpose is fulfilled, he'll take you home. In his time, in his way, and for his glory, you see. And I hope that gives you great joy. I call these next few verses as we end the hellish rejection. I know it sounds terrible, but it is. Now, when they heard this 54, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth. That means they were tremendously frustrated and hellishly angry. When they heard this, verse 54, heard what? It wasn't Abraham. They weren't mad. Was it Joseph? No, it wasn't Joseph. Was it Moses? It wasn't Moses that they were infuriated with. How about David? Still. But they became unglued when he mentioned the name of Jesus. And it says, but they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. I'm sure they were yelling blasphemy. I'm sure they were, they were covering their ears. You know, I wrote this. You can cover your ears. Young people need to hear this because it seems like young people want this safe space. I don't want to hear anything and put me in a room and lock it and put the people that want to 
talk to me about other ideas in, in other rooms, and I don't ever want to hear that. And I think to myself, you can cover your ears from hearing the truth, but that will not excuse you when you stand before the God of truth. They were covering their ears saying, we want, don't want to hear Jesus as Lord, but the Bible says in Romans 14, 12, every, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So these people here that didn't come to Christ, but were in the presence of truth, they're saying, no, 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 I didn't hear that. And God will say, no, no, you did hear that. You had your ears closed. Physically, you were plugging your ears. The truth was being presented, and you were accountable for that. Well, heaven's reception. I love this. I love this portion of scripture. God has promised our entire Christian life to never leave us or forsake us, right? God has promised in our Christian life that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, right? Stephen's realizing those are more than words on paper. They're promises from a holy, good, righteous, dependable God, and he's seeing them fulfilled right before his very eyes. And we have a front row seat to the faithfulness of God right here. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord. And he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then saying this, he fell asleep. Do you remember what the Lord said to that precious church in Smyrna, Revelation 2? He said, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, or the crown which is eternal life. So not only is he getting a standing ovation from the Lord Jesus Christ, he's getting the crown of life. And I know what you're wondering. Wait a minute. Doesn't Hebrews 8.1 say that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? I thought he's seated at the right hand of God. He is, because his work on the cross was done. Salvation was finished. You never saw a high priest who was sitting, because his work was never done. Christ was crucified one time. He sat down, and he said, it's finished. But he only stands up to welcome his children home. Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. God is more excited to see you than you are to see him. Think about that. He is more excited to see you because he has so many things he wants to show you. He has so many things he wants to tell you. Remember when he said, I go to prepare a place for you? Remember when Jesus said that? Man, he can't wait to show you all the wonderful things. You remember that verse that says, I has not seen Yet ear is heard, neither has entered into the heart of men the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Well, he gets to show Stephen now. You say, there's no way. No way I could have the grace that Stephen said when he says, 
falling on his knees, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. There's no way I could have done that. <laughs> yes, you could have. No, I couldn't. I would have called down curses. No, because Hebrews 4.15 says he will give you grace to help in time of need. You think that's uh, Stephen's time of need right here? God's just pouring grace, pouring grace, giving him strength. And it says he fell asleep. <laughs> I thought he died. He did die. That's how the Bible describes falling asleep. It's such a non-thing. The biggest thing in your life was your salvation. Your death is just like, hmm, fall asleep. Fall asleep. I think death is a lot easier for the Christian than we're making it. I really do. And I'll tell you when we're on the other side. You can tell me, no, it was hard, you know. But uh, I think he came to Stephen. I think he put his arm around him and said, come with me. And there he is in that pit, and they're throwing all these rocks on him. Come on. Come home. You won't need that body anymore. I'll give you a new one. And it just takes him home. Isn't that the grace of God? Isn't that the goodness of God? The kindness, the faithfulness of God? Peacefully and calmly, Stephen falls into the arms of Jesus. I wrote this down. I didn't want to mess it up, so I wrote it down. A man, there you have it, a man who was not looking for a great, big, better life. He wasn't looking for his best life now. He wasn't looking for this incredible, audacious destiny that was waiting for him right around the corner. He was longing for his Savior and faithfully serving him wherever the cost, whatever the cost and wherever he went. And this cost was death. Can I ask you a question? I have it on the beginning of the notes and the end of the notes. How tight are you holding on to your life? I'm reading a book called Killing Christians, Living the Faith When It's Not Safe to Believe. I know, I have to choose some lighter reading. Um, that's what you're thinking, I know. They tell a story in there about a man and a woman, a man named Shukri and a woman named Hadija. They were from Fallujah, right next to Baghdad in Iraq, and it was after Saddam's deposing and when ISIS was taking over that country. And this sweet couple came to Christ. They're in their 30s. They have two kids. He has a heart to, listen to this. He has a heart to give New Testaments at the entrances of all the mosques in Fallujah. Okay? Death wish. And his wife loved him so much. And he says, oh, listen, Hadija, I'm having such a wonderful time. God's giving me so much favor. I want to go to Mosul. 300 miles north to the Grand Mosque. That's my desire. And so she says, oh, Shukri, I don't want to lose you. I love you. We're best friends. We have two small kids. But they all moved up there. And he passes out a whole box of New Testaments the first day. He comes home and he says, it was a little scary, but I think one more day will do it and then we can move on. So the next day he went, passed out the Bibles, and as he was coming home on the corner, there were six men that circled him. And he says, I don't know if I met you at the mosque today. My name is Shukri. I am a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, we're from ISIS. And they pulled their cloaks, and they had AK-47s and huge knives. And she was informed, 
Hadija was informed two hours later from the police that her husband was brutally murdered. And in her diary, she wrote, the hardest thing to talk about is how cruelly Isis tortured Shukri before he died. They slashed him with knives all over his body before shooting him in the head and the chest. They dragged him off and buried him in a patch of sand. The police called me to tell me, called me to the scene to identify Shukri's body. And when I arrived, they had already pulled him out of the shallow grave. They showed him the note that Isis had pinned to his shirt and told me that they had, when they found him, his right hand was sticking out of the ground and pointing towards heaven. Only one thing helped me bear the sight of my dear husband, sprawled on the ground, bloody, beaten, and lifeless. He was smiling. I know why he was smiling. Matthew 10:39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you get if you give up your life for me, you will find it. He found it. Psalm 16:11 says, "You have made known to be the path of life, and in your presence is full joy." Shukri had Full joy. Bible says, absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. So I don't know what the Lord's doing in your life this morning. If you don't know Christ, I hope he's softening your heart and giving you a desire to maybe know more about him online or we'll have people up here that can pray with you, that can explain the way of God more clearly to you. Or if you're a Christian who just got his focus off and he needs to pray with somebody to maybe recommit that. I'm up here and there'll be people up here for you. So let's have a, let's stand and let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the life of Stephen. It's both convicting and so encouraging. He was a man like us and that he lived filled with the Spirit filled with believing your promises. Father, you gave him a powerful but short life. I pray that everyone in this room would not be so consumed with how long we live, but how faithful we are to a great God who wants to use us in the time that you've given us now. We'll give you the praise because God, we want to be used by you. Lord, we want to we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We know that you want to see us more than we want to see you, and that thrills our hearts. So God, let's go out of here and be men and women who are filled with the Spirit, living for the glory of an almighty God. For it's in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Have a great day.